Welcome to Saving the Game. This is Episode 20, Diligence, Part 6 of our Virtues and Vices series, recorded Friday, May 10th, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, and Brandon. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Brandon, and I am so glad we're actually recording this one. I know, this podcast brought to you by Technical Difficulties. Yeah, lots of them. Yes. Affecting multiples of us. I think all of us at one point. But mostly me, because I'm a fool. Well, I don't know, Brandon was having some too. Well, yes, but... That's my internet, that's not me. That's not me not recording the first half an hour of... But it's still a technical difficulty. The the actual problematic difficulties were me not figuring out microphones, because I'm a fool, apparently. Anyway. Or you'd had a long day at work or something. I'm going to go with fool. So, news. Peter. Yeah. You were at Fear the Con. I was at Fear the Con. Awesome. Yes, it was. I would love to talk about this extensively, but I think it would make for kind of a boring podcast, so I think maybe I'll try and throw together some kind of a uh, blog post or something about it in the somewhat Yeah, we may talk about it some next episode, but this one, we've got a lot of content, so we'll we'll save kind of the, the Fear the Con recap for that one. How's that sound? Works for me. Good. Brandon, you got anything? Uh, did I have it? I don't remember. If if I had anything to say last time, then I've completely forgotten it. I'll just edit it in. Okay. The file. <laughs> that works. It's the power of being the editor. All Brandon right. puts in three and a half hours of content. Oh, real quick, I did want to explain to anybody who's uh, listening to this episode for the first time, perhaps because you got a card from Peter at Fear the Con or, or otherwise awesome. The Virtues and Vices series we're doing here is a series where we're sort of talking about the seven deadly sins, seven heavenly virtues, and probably a few virtues more. So if you're just coming in on this one, you may want to back up one episode and listen to the one on sloth, since we'll be doing some comparisons there, uh, and the whole series may be of interest to you. All right, so let's let's get our scripture going here. Uh, Brandon, you want to take that first one from Proverbs? Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Grant, I'm going to make you put the parable that you put in here. That's fair. All right, so this is Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and made another five talents. And likewise he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his lord's money. After a long time the lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man 
reaping where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him, and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the third verse that we have is Ephesians 4.28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So, we're talking about diligence tonight, which is the virtue contrary to sloth. Those of you paying attention may have noticed that this is not one of the four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, that are so common in what we call classical antiquity, the the Greek traditions that most Western ethical systems grow out of. Nor is it one of the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, that Paul describes in his letters. So, the, the question is sort of where does this come from as a virtue specific and contrary to sloth? Why is it among the seven heavenly virtues? As a quick lesson in history here, the seven heavenly virtues come from a 5th century poem, Psychomachia, or Contest of the Soul. Uh, It was written by Aurelius Clements Prudentius, a Christian Roman governor who proposed these seven contrary virtues to directly combat these traditional seven deadly sins that the Church had even then developed. Psychomachia is really kind of the the first of the medieval allegory poems. It's really one of the most influential. It was very popular throughout the Middle and Medieval Ages. Uh, And it set the stage for works like Everyman and Piers Plowman, even Dante's The Divine Comedy, things like that. Diligence actually consists of kind of three interrelated parts that work together. You have industry or productivity, as uh, um, Brandon is... um, Fond of mentioning. Yes, because as we mentioned, it was the first thing. The sin of sloth was originally called A-C-E-D-I-A. Acadia. Yeah. I believe I'm seeing that right. I think Acadia, but I'm not sure. Acadia, alright. It encompassed not only the not doing anything, but it specifically mentioned not doing something to better yourself. And the original word that went opposite to that, instead of diligence, was industria, which is industry. Or, you know, working to better oneself and one's surroundings and everything like that. So diligence is not just working hard at your job, it is also about going out there and making yourself, and even others, I would suppose, better. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got Industry or productivity or, you know, kind of an active kind of component there. You have responsibility and you have persistence. Right. I think those three ideas are what really defines the virtue of diligence. Exactly. So, Brandon, you've already started to break down industry a little bit. Should we take that one first? Uh, sure. Go right ahead. All right. Obviously, uh... This is kind of an active virtue, and this particular aspect of diligence is, at least I have found, to be one of the more viscerally satisfying ones. The sense of accomplishment that you get from seeing a project through to the end, having something to show for your hard work, is is hard to deny. A lot of the other virtues are there to kind of shield you from doing things that you will regret later or allowing bad things into your life, and there's certainly an aspect of that to diligence as well. But I think it's like charity 
in that encompasses actually doing something good rather than just avoiding something bad. Huh? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It requires a productive use of resources, and that's the message behind the parable of the talents, that you've been given something, turn that into something more, and specifically something good. Building a, an impressive factory that only produces pollutants and is not, in, in a Christian sense, good industry. No. <laughs> Things like that. Building a charitable organization like the Salvation Army that goes out and like helps the needy and feeds the hungry, that's pretty industrious. Yeah. Especially one that operates that efficiently. Exactly. To be fair, there is no industry out there that just puts out pollution. That only appears in, like, Captain Planet cartoons. Yeah, this is very true. Oh, I know. I'm being facetious here. But, yeah, it's uh, hyperbole to prove a point, I think. Well, yeah, it's going to get back to something that I'm going to mention. So I wanted to bring up there that while you're mentioning a big factory that's pumping out pollution, they could be making something that at least the people who make the factory think is very, very important and very, very helpful even if it's not really to the rest of the world. Sure. Right, but it's important for us as Christians to look at that and say, all right, is this a net good? That's, I think, important. There may be side effects. It's our responsibility to mitigate those side effects as much as possible. We we're always striving for the greater possible good. I think there was a key thing in there that Brandon mentioned, though, which was working hard to improve yourself and your surroundings, mm -hmm. to make things better. That might be the, the key part of industry. Yeah, I agree. Off the top of my head, a really good example of this would be Abraham Lincoln. You know, worked tirelessly and fought a, his way through kind of an ugly presidential campaign and then fought a war that he didn't want to fight and eventually cost him his life, but he did a lot of good in his life. He was a very kind of driven, hardworking person, but he wasn't as perfect as children's history book makes him out to be, but I think his heart was in the right place a lot of the time, and I think that's a decent example of kind of industry in the virtuous sense. Yeah, we've kind of hit on industry a fair bit here. How about responsibility? My favorite example of responsibility, and this goes back to last episode a little bit, is actually a fictional one, and that is Spider-Man. For those who aren't aware of Spider-Man's origin, um, I'm sorry, some half century after the character was created, I'm going to spoil it. Uh, <laughs> Uncle Ben dies, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Snape kills Dumbledore, Rosebud is a sled. The ship sinks. <laughs> I didn't say I was going to spoil everything, it's just Spider-Man's origin. Soylent Green's people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Darth Vader is Luke's father. I, I, oh my I, I, gosh! You just ruined it for my child, I'm just saying. So, <clears throat> for those unaware, which is probably none of you, but if there's even one, I'm going to go through this anyways as a refresher course. Peter Parker gets bitten by the radioactive spider. He develops his superhuman abilities, and he originally starts out as kind of like a, a wrestler, and um, he's using them in just an entertaining setting. In fact, that's actually where he gets his costume from. Uh, we should mention, we are specifically referencing... The Tobey Maguire movies. Yes, Not there the are. Newest. Or the comic yeah. books. Yeah, there are other canonical versions of this, I'm sure, but this is the one we're all most familiar with, honestly. Because we're not generally comic book nerds, so... Yeah, I, I probably more than these guys, and still less than a lot of people who are... We're other nerds. Not an expert, but this is a well-known story. Yeah. So, he's done with his first match, and this guy that has kind of annoyed him earlier in the story is trying to chase down a thief... And he's like, hey, stop him, trip him up, and he lets the thief run right past. At any rate, the same thief, regardless of which version of the story it is that you're reading, eventually kills Peter Parker's father figure, his Uncle Ben. 
later. He had the ability to stop this guy earlier, and he didn't. He deliberately stood by and watched it. And out of that comes the famous phrase, with great power comes great responsibility. That was pretty much the first time that that phrase was used popularly was in the the Spider-Man comics. That is like Peter Parker's last slothful action in his entire life. In fact, I would say diligence probably is one of his defining characteristics as a character. He goes on to become one of these people that is very upstanding and virtuous in a lot of ways because he realizes that as somebody with power, he doesn't get to sit on the sidelines. It is expected of him. It is his responsibility. Because he has the amount of agency that he does, his responsibility is proportional to that. Well, it also is a great example of diligence because of how Stanley initially created him and thought of him as he wanted to have a superhero who, instead of being an untouchable, like, alien, was a normal kid who had normal responsibilities. Yeah. So that very much is Peter Parker's life. He he still has to go to school. Yeah. He still has to get a job. <laughs> He's going to school, like, getting a job, taking care yeah. of an older relative. Yeah, trying yeah. to have marriage and stuff later on. And Yeah, exactly. I mean, yes. Superman had a job at the Daily Planet, but it, it never seemed like that big of an issue. But like with Spider-Man, it's, it's, it's usually like, from what I remember out the little I've read of the comic books is those become really, really big things is like, and it's even there in, uh, in the new movie that they released is one of the biggest problems is that he has to go out and get a, a carton of eggs for his, his Aunt May. And like, it's something he has to remember during his day to be diligent in his work with yeah. that. Yeah, I, the writers of Spider-Man like to really push on the level of responsibility that he has and make essentially make poor Peter Parker live in ISTJ hell, where all of his uh, responsibilities are conflicting with each other and he can't possibly fulfill all of his duties at once. Yeah. Which makes for really compelling storytelling, but also makes my ISTJ guts tie in a knot when I read it. Yeah, that's something that happens in a lot of storytelling, especially in the sitcoms. I mean, everyone knows the episode of the sitcoms where, like, oh my gosh, you have to go on two dates at once, or, like, you have to be at this big job presentation, but you promised your girlfriend that you would go out to dinner with her. It, this is something that has been in the storytelling world. It's in the writer's toolbox, yeah. Yeah, and, and to, to pull this out of the realm of the theoretical and fictional, anybody who's been in any sort of committed relationship for a while has also had to deal with this. Yes. Yeah. You know, let, let's not get ourselves... Grant, I watched you deal with this a little bit when your daughter was being born. I mean, yeah, yeah. families and work have this annoying tendency to conflict with each other. Yes. And neither, neither one cares that the other one is there. Well, fortunately, I work for a really good company that does care that the other one's there. Which makes you a very fortunate man. I am extremely fortunate because I have been in positions where companies didn't care. And I totally understand that a lot of them don't. And that's just really hard to work with. Where do I make cuts? You know, what do I give up? Yeah, who do I disappoint today? Yeah, who do I disappoint? Who do I get in trouble with? You know, it's tough. Which one of my five plates do I drop? Because I can only juggle four. Yeah, exactly. This brings up a point that I hadn't even thought of, but since it's popped up in the conversation, I'd like to address it. Mm -hmm. I think that overcommitting yourself is not diligence. Um, I'm... Not sure what it is, pride maybe, but it certainly isn't diligence, because I, if you take on more than you can handle, and then try and keep it all in the air without addressing any of it, 
you're not doing anybody any favors. I'm not certain it's pride more than just the folly of man in general. I wouldn't say, like, it's a sin. Yeah, it might be foolishness, perhaps. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and say pride, because it's like, no, I can handle this. I can I can totally make this work, even though you know you can't. Eh. You know, I have been put in that situation where I felt I had to take on some of these and it wasn't out of pride. It was... Obligation or something? A sense of obligation to a lot of people, and I'm trying to yeah. juggle a lot. Trying not to let anybody down, huh? And you, yeah, and sometimes you just, you can't. We should have the fortitude when somebody asks you to say, I can't do any more than what I'm doing now, or I will disappoint you or someone else, and you will be left with something half. Let me bring this back around then. So you need to have the fortitude and humility... To admit that you're a finite human being? Yes. Now, lack of pride in it, admitting that is certainly part of it, but it's I would say it doesn't come from pride. I definitely think you're stretching, yeah, Peter. Yeah, you are on this one. Well, okay, fair enough. Not practicing the, the right amount of diligence is not the same thing as being prideful, if that makes sense. Wow, this is unusual. I'm playing devil's advocate this time. I know, that's usually my point. Well, no, you're just wrong. <laughs> Says you, but now I'm being prideful, okay? <laughs> yeah, I know. <clears throat> uh, yeah, because I'm totally not. We shall adjust our monocles, shake our hands, toss our coattails, and move on. All of this said, you're correct that if taking on too much responsibility gets in the way of you effectively accomplishing the things that you have promised to do, the responsibilities you've been given, you're not practicing the appropriate level of diligence that you have. Yeah, if if the person is going out there and saying, oh, well, I'm so great, I can force and do it, then yeah, that's pride. But <laughs> that if, it's, if it's saying, like, okay, yeah, I can be at your birthday party and forgetting that you have, like, a paper due that day. Like, right, exactly. That is, that is definitely not pride. Or if it's like, or you know you have the paper due that day, but your friend is just begging and pleading and wanting you to come and you know you're going to upset them and you don't want to upset them. And that, that's, that's more appeasement than yeah. pride. Yeah, you're right. In that case, you're not showing the, the fortitude to say, I'm sorry, you know, I have to disappoint you on this, and I'm, but I have this other responsibility. I'll send you a gift. I'll call you later, something like that. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's coming from something else. And you know what? I, actually, I don't think this is always one virtue or sin or always another. I, th I think it can be any number of things. Yeah, it's you something know, it interfering be... with your proper practice of diligence. And it also doesn't have to be a virtue or a sin, because there are other things. No, it, it definitely doesn't. Sometimes the unexpected happens. Yes. Yeah, uh, there's always that. Life. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have overcommitted myself if there hadn't been a 30-car pileup on the I-10 while I was driving to this place. I had this all planned out. Yeah. You know? Since we're still on responsibility, I did want to emphasize that the degree of agency you have in a situation, how much responsibility you have, determines how much is expected of you. And this is something that Christ's parables emphasize several times. Peter, I know, I think the, the parables you, you come back to several times is uh, the widow in the temple who's giving, you know, giving all that she has, uh, sacrificing. Yeah, and Christ really praises her for that. Right, and we see it here, you know, in this parable because it, the servant who has been given this very large sum of money to invest, great deal is expected of him. The parable 
may be a little misleading to people who aren't familiar with how much money a talent actually is. Yeah, we should get into that, because it's a lot more than I used to think it is. Yeah. You, you found this. So. I thought it was, like, a coin, and yeah. so when the guy when the guy buried it in the ground, I'm like, well, he had a penny. Yeah. <laughs> I actually thought it was more like a thousand bucks, but Grant, you did some digging into this. I did. All right. How much is a talent, anyway? All right, well, first, uh, Brandon, I'm right with you, and I think it comes from Sunday school. You know, it was, oh, you know, this is a talent and yada, yada, yada. And I don't know if it was someone just didn't get it right or they're trying to kind of make it relatable. Like, you know, it, imagine taking your allowance and, you know, what would you do with that? Something well, like that. Well, also, in it was a singular word. Like, a something. Exactly. You think of one thing. Yeah, exactly. But it's actually a unit of measurement. A talent is a Greek unit of measurement that's about 80 pounds. This is 80 pounds of solid silver. It's about 300K. It's yeah. about $300,000 in today's money. It's an enormous amount of money. Uh, and somebody's given five of these. So just, just to do some quick math for you, that guy that got five of them had a million and a half dollars worth of resources. Yeah. Also, the servant who didn't do anything with this buried $300,000 into the backyard. All right. Just that's what we're talking about. That changes the story just ever so slightly to be like, yeah. Well, yeah. and the the thing that the thing that's interesting about that is, if it was just about coins, it wouldn't work as well. A coin is not an investable amount of money. You can be responsible with it. You can you can save it. You can you know you can not fritter it away. But it's really hard to turn around and take like the equivalent of a hundred bucks, for instance, turn it into a thousand or whatever. It, it, and I realize this was just you know doubling in this particular case, but. It's hard to double small amounts of money. It is. Uh, Even back in the ancient world, I think it was probably a lot easier if you had some real capital to start with. And all Mm -hmm. three of these guys did. Yeah, it's it's a great deal of money. that They had very significant gifts. And from this parable, we get the word talent. Talent is actually this Greek word. And And it's actually the same word today, by the way. Yeah, exactly the same word. And it's taken on the meaning of gifts or abilities. It's from this parable. It's the skills and abilities and resources that we have. You know, and in this parable, all three of these servants were given tremendous resources, great power over something, and this question is, what did they do with it and what was expected of them? See, that's that's one point that I wanted to bring up, is that it, it's it's not about the amount, it's about the percentage. Yeah, in many ways it is. Going back to what you had said about the, the woman and the two coins, which was a great story that I absolutely loved, while as I know we've talked about how, how both you and I at the beginning had, had some problems understanding the parable of the talents, and part of it was for me I, was, was me wondering about the virtue of trying and failing, which mm-hmm. I believe is still a virtue as long as you learn from it. Right. But the other point that I want to say here is like, in these other things, they've had a 100% return on investment, which, you know, is really great, but it makes the 0% return on investment look like the most horrible thing in the world, as opposed to what, what we had with uh, in the parable of the two coins. We had a whole bunch of people who were putting in um, uh, like many, many different coins into these, you know, offering plates, but their individual contribution was like, okay, well, like 10%, maybe less than what they had yeah. themselves to give. So, right. you know, while it was a hundred coins, it doesn't matter if you have a, a million of them. But this one lady gave two. And those two 
were a hundred percent, exactly, or close to a hundred percent of what she had. So that's why it's like she's given the most. Why? Because in the percentage game, you know, the, if these people had come in here and given the percent she gave, we wouldn't need anyone. Else. Yeah, you're exactly right. And for me, this parable's always been a little tough because of the the very harsh tone it takes in a lot of ways. It, it took me a long time to understand this particular parable. It, it, some are easier to understand than others, In particular, you know? the master in this is actually a lot more of a jerk than God is portrayed as in the rest of Scripture. Yeah, and it's it's unusual because it's, it's almost got this very violent ending. And it's just, it took me a while to really understand it because you it's not something you can take at face value. You, you have to understand how to interpret it and understand what Jesus was saying to his audience. This is fairly standard prophetic hyperbole, right? I mean, Jesus uses this a lot in his teachings where he will come out and say stuff in a very kind of exaggerated way to make a point. We use this a lot in modern conversation. People will be like, oh, I am so hungry I could eat a horse. No, you couldn't. It would not fit in your stomach. No matter how hungry you are, the horse is several times bigger than you. That's true. (laughs) As much as I want it, I don't have a smoker that big. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I could eat part of a horse. That's right. Yeah. What you were saying about this being a little different from God and Jesus as he portrayed him. In the New Testament, Jesus and God are very much you know, different. However, in the Old Testament, God was that strict and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, and, and remember, he's giving the parable to the Pharisees, who, that's their understanding of God. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I could go off on a huge theological tangent here, which we don't have time for, so... Uh, unfortunately, that's true. We don't. Uh, and frankly, I'm not sure we're qualified to do so, because... <laughs> No, I would be quoting what I'd heard from people who are qualified and probably doing a terrible job of it. So let's yeah. move on. But I do want to emphasize that the whole point of this parable is that we are expected to live up to the responsibilities we've been given, and that the skills and abilities and material resources we have should be put to use. Hoarding them is sinful. Not using them for the Lord's work is sinful. I'm reminded of an old children's song about this little light of mine. Yes. Uh, yeah. Hiding under a bushel, no, I'm gonna let it shine. Yeah. Like... Yeah, uh, you're exactly yeah. right. Like a lot of those children's Sunday school songs, that one's actually got a little more worth than you think of when you're in your early 20s. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking teenage years where it's, oh, make the children's choir stop. But yes. <laughs> I think we've covered... What diligence is. Actually, we still have another aspect yeah, to cover. Yeah, I, I, I swore that we had covered only two of the branches. Yeah, we need to hit persistence. Oh, you're right, we do. Which you have been showing a lot of trying to keep us on topic, Grant. I do have to give you that. <laughs> persistence is not the same thing as fortitude or courage, which is its own virtue numbered among some of these lists. The It's actually the one of the virtues I mentioned at the, the start of this section when we were talking about the four classical virtues. So... How we define persistence as compared to fortitude is kind of important. Persistence is essentially being willing to see something difficult through to the end. Realizing that uh, something good that is worth doing is worth pushing through some difficulty on. Definitely kind of overlaps with the idea of fortitude in a lot of cases, but I think it's separate enough where it can be kind of its own thing. Yeah, fortitude is being strong in the face of dangers and difficulties. Persistence is continuing to be diligent. In the face of failure. I I think it's actually continuing to be hopeful when things don't look so hopeful on their own. Well, remember, hope is its own virtue. It is. I mean, again, some of these overlap. I'm not saying they don't overlap, and I I don't want to be legalistic about this, but just 
I don't want to no, get certainly not. too far off topic either, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Well, hope, I would say, is is more of just and the intangible against the face of anything. While, as we're saying, persistence is, in the case of your own personal failures keeping on going, and as fortitude, as you mentioned, is going against fear. They're, they're against separate different things, but they are around the same push. It's a motion forward through adversity. Yeah, yeah, I can go with that. You're right. Persistence is an important part of diligence because when you encounter difficulties, it, you, you're not being diligent if you just go, well, I tried that, bounced off of it. Can't do it. What's for dinner? Yep, exactly. Diligence at the gaming table and diligence in your game. You want to start with in-game as usual? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. All right. <clears throat> let's start with the player perspective on this first. Is uh, Diligence... How we can use the idea of diligence from a, a player's perspective. Okay, so I think probably one of the easiest and, uh, frankly, one of the things that will make your GM the most happy is if you do take a little bit of the Spider-Man example and look at all of the bad things happening in the world as something that you don't get to sit on the sidelines and just watch. If you're playing a character that is diligent in this kind of classical sense, you will be kind of constitutionally unable to stand by and just watch bad things happen in the world. You will see it as your responsibility to get out there and do something because you are powerful enough to actually affect some kind of change. Which means you push the narrative. <laughs> Which means you are actively engaged in the narrative in the world, and you're doing things. As opposed to sitting in the inn, role-playing out drinking again. Well, true. Yeah. And this is something that I actually, I've been focusing on and I've been thinking on a whole lot, is the fact that while, as I mentioned in the Sloth episode, that I think Sloth is the most harmful sin for a good person to have, interestingly enough, diligence is actually found in a lot of different villains because they're going through their plans. Now, what they're doing is not good. This is what I wanted to jump back to, the whole factory thing, mm -hmm. about the factory pumping out pollution. What the factory that's pumping out all that pollution is doing, they're making widgets, and they might think that widgets are the best thing in the world, but they don't really matter all that much. That's the same thing as the villain in the story is the villain is doing something that a lot of the times they think is the best thing for society because as is a popular saying no one is the villain of their own story so in a lot of good tales unless you have someone out there who's just playing joker crazy and wants to watch the world burn right they're doing something because they want to make the world a better place under their tyrannical rule or at least they want to better their own situation yes that's because the villain is always self-focused and things like that. Yeah, that's usually a lot of it. Yeah. I would say that there is certainly often an element of persistence in villains, and we're kind of getting into the GM side, but whatever. Persistence, yes. Well, also evil characters. Well, that's true. To mention on Fear the Boot, when they played their evil campaign, as they said, evil characters are self-motivated. Whereas a lot of heroes tend to be reactionary. They don't have something to do until tragedy strikes, and then they jump in. Right, it's the call to heroism as opposed uh, to... I think if you're playing your heroes that way, you need more practice playing heroic people, but... Well, no, because a hero steps up to face a danger. Without that danger, there is no hero for the story. Does that make sense? Mm, yes and no. This is not to say that, you know, they're not otherwise good people, but when we're talking about an epic story, yeah. that's kind of what we're calling about. The call to action, there has right. to be... Yeah, there, there's a threat that needs to be answered and that sort of thing, but... Yeah, eh. you, you are being called to address yeah. a particular problem. Well, I kind of see where you're coming from. I'm going to go to City of Heroes, City of Villains. 
the MMOs that were out there. If you played a villain, when you went to pick up a mission, you opened up the newspaper and picked something that you wanted to menace because the villain was being proactive. He was finding the thing that he wanted to go and wreak havoc on. Whereas the hero would wait, oh, a villain is, you know, wreaking havoc in the city. Superman, please come save us. And the bat signal comes on. Superman started answering the bat signal now? Oh, no, I was making different references to... Boy, Gotham City's going to be cleaned up in no time. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And suddenly Batman's story is done. The end. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nerds everywhere cry themselves to sleep. And scream angrily on internet forums. Let's not kid ourselves. We just launched Batman Superman. You're you're right. It was this phrase that launched a thousand nerd rages. Exactly. I think the commonality we're talking about here, though, is a a drive and diligence here to accomplish something as a player, you've got a character that creates plot and moves it forward and is never bored. And this works well if you've got a GM. He's kind of got lingering, meandering plots, and they don't always go every- anywhere. And You know, the game's still worth playing, or no one else wants to step up and run. Kind of GM from the other side of the screen here and make a character that moves the plot forward on their own. You know where else this is really good? When your GM is feeling really burned out, yeah, even a really good GM will occasionally just run out of steam for a while. Yeah. And if you've got a character who's like actively engaged, it's like, okay, everything that we'd had thrown at us was dealt with. That's wonderful. This world has still got problems. I'm going to go find some of them and do something about it. Go back to Micah 6-8. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. It's like, I'm going to go out and see what kind of systemic wrongs exist that I can find. Right. These are active verbs. Go do. Yeah. Exactly. To have a proactive character that puts a lot of background and story into their characters is another great form of diligence as a player. Like, if you hand me a fighter who sprung up from the earth with a sword. Fighter. The armor. Yeah, he likes to hit things. I can do some stuff with that character, but not much. I actually experienced this in the game that I'm currently running. I hope my players aren't listening to this, but a lot of the players that I got in my first little round, some of the characters I had, I'm like, okay, how am I going to tie these in? And and they weren't really getting into character creation or anything like that. But then I met another friend, and they she brought in two of her friends, and they joined the game, and all their characters are interconnected. Right. And one of the other guys from that group has sort of interconnected with them, and all of a sudden there's a reason for the group to be together. Yeah. And because they put an effort in describing their characters and even having a little tiny neato things that can happen, like, I've been able to come up and, and have sort of really interesting, weird things with the plot happening that only one character really knows about right now. Yeah. Part of this, I'm sure, is these players, I'm, I'm guessing, were kind of new and didn't understand how how to roleplay well. You know, actually, no. The uh, players that were not doing so well were older role players, and I think the other people they're they're not necessarily new, but, but like there's at least one of them which I, I don't know if they've roleplayed all that much. Gotcha. Well, maybe th- these guys just never so. really learned how to roleplay. They learned how to dungeon crawl, but not a lot of good roleplaying. Well, and I think I think a certain amount of burnout can set in with players, too. It, so. it certainly can. I, I think role-playing is a learned skill in many cases, and frankly, sometimes you just kind of have to learn it from your peers. Well, and this so. actually leads into one of the great ways of being diligent as a player, as opposed to player character, is drive stuff forward intentionally and yes. grab other player characters and draw them into it. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. If everybody else is having a slow night, do something outrageous and then turn and look at one of the other players and be like, so, 
What do you think about this whole situation? Yeah, or say, I will take this guy and this guy and go do a thing. Yeah, I had great fun with this in one of the games at Fear of the Con. Now, I should say that I think the guy that I was doing this with probably would have been a lot more active if I hadn't been just a little extra silly and found ways of dragging him around that he just was kind of waiting to see what would happen next. Uh-huh. I'm playing this very heroic, cartoony-style mouse, and he's playing this rabbit... I kept pushing for more and more heroic actions. They got tossed into the ocean, and, well, our course of action is clear. We have to invade the pirate ship over there. Okay. All right. It wouldn't work in every game, but when you're working with kind of Disney-like tropes, that works perfectly. Yeah, and see, this is what I'm talking about. You've got a character that makes things happen. Yeah. And that's great. Well, I actually had another example that happened with a game I was playing Mm -hmm. in. A friend of mine ran a game based off of the video game Skies of Arcadia. And somehow we realized that he was using that plot. And so we got to a point where we were supposed to find a way to go to this other town. And this captain needed convincing to go there. And so I, using out-of-game knowledge, was like, well, wouldn't there be some kind of weapon that they might have? Because I had looked at like the plot synopsis of the game and realized that, oh, they go there for a harpoon gun. Okay, so I need to start mentioning the words... Harpoon gun. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the night, the GM's like, "Oh man, thank you so much for doing that and help me push it forward." I'm like, "I just basically cheated at your game." So okay. Oh. <laughs> you know, there are good and bad ways of using metagame knowledge, though. You know, it's like moving the plot forward is not cheating. <laughs> yeah, I am not somebody who will ever tell you that all metagame knowledge is bad. If you're doing it to encourage fun at the table and get things going, yay, good job. I know there are some groups where. That kind of rigid separation of player and character knowledge is important, but man, for certain games, go ahead, break the fourth wall, you know, pull in knowledge that your character couldn't possibly have if it unjams the plot. It's all about knowing your game and your fellow players. Since we're talking about examples from games, I do have an example on the responsibility side of things. Actually, two that I can think of. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. uh, The first, we're talking about characters that are interesting, characters with responsibilities You have a lot more to get involved with when you have a character that starts off responsible for something on some scale. Not only that, the GM's got some more levers that they can pull on. It was no accident that I made you guys part of a knightly order in the game that I'm running for you. yeah, exactly. The Birthright campaign that we've had going for like eight years with my group of friends, all of those characters are responsible for large organizations of people or large tracts of land or tremendous amount of money, and that gives us a bunch of NPCs that we can logically work with and get involved with, who can bring things to our attention, i.e., hey, here's a plot hook. It gives the GM things to threaten. It gives us a chance to develop those characters by virtue of interacting with the people that we are in charge of and that we report to. Well, and another thing that's important to remember is that people with responsibilities have things that they love. Yeah, exactly. That's a very powerful motivator. Anybody who's got a family knows that the desire to provide a good life and care for your family motivates people to work some pretty arduous jobs and stuff because, hey, that's what it takes. Absolutely. True, but that reason of that motivation is one of the main reasons that everyone plays Batman. 
everyone wants to play my parents are dead and I have no siblings yeah. and, they and do, I have no I... responsibility because I don't want the GM to pull that stuff on me and in fact I had that one in a game where I had a GM who was a very good GM but he, he always RP horror and I had a character that was pre-established and had a family and kids mm-hmm. and I sat down before him I said look dude I don't want you doing anything to mess with these people I don't want you harming them. I don't want you damaging them in any way, way, shape, or form because I earned them in another game, and like I don't want you to, just yeah. for the whim, put them in harm's way. Yeah, and I think a lot of the unwillingness to have characters with responsibility comes from the fact that there are a lot of bad GMs out there who don't understand how to use those character connections and just use it as a stick to beat a player with. Instead of saying, hey, here's an interesting plot. You know, oh, you're married? Well, I could have your wife kidnapped or killed or, uh, you know, your husband goes and cheats on you or your wife could... Or, more interestingly, you can have the spouse be there to give information, support the character like they do in real life. Yeah. Hey, your wife comes in and says, hey, something interesting happened at work today. Really? What was that? And then... The plot starts from that. Or like spouses often do in the real world, your character has just had the stuffing kicked out of them. They're at a really low place. Their spouse comes alongside them and says, I love you anyways. Now get back out there and do what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. If we're talking Spider-Man, go get him, Tiger. Yeah. You (laughs) You have that support network. And the game that I'm trying to set up now on the Fear the Boot forums should be getting... If it's not going by the time this episode drops, I'm in trouble. I'll just say that. It's a a (laughs) play-by-post game using Rain, which inherently involves all of the characters having a an organization, a company that they are in charge of. So I'm setting up the group of players. They're starting off as basically the guys in charge of a trading enclave in a foreign country. And they're not entirely welcome there, but they've got the ear of the local king, so they have a little bit of protection. But they're responsible for the lives and well-being of all the other people who have traveled there with them. That's a big deal. And there's a lot of interesting stories to be had. And that's something we've kind of collectively come up with as GM and as players. So there's a lot of cool stories that can be told there just by saying, yeah, I'll take these hooks and make them into something really cool and memorable. Responsibility, I think, is one of the best things you can do under this diligence banner. Oh, yeah. It's it's a fantastic motivator. It's basically like plot in a can. Exactly. Well, like... You have to look at what we have in Peter's game, which has been on life support since it got started. Yeah. And I am upset no. about that fact. You know what? It's summer vacation now, so hopefully it'll be a little easier for me to, to do sessions. I hope so, because I am sick and tired of being sick and tired of missing games. Peter. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Peter. you have a group of people who are responsible for it, and, and in the game I'm running right now, they just set out, because I, I made sure that they were all from a town, the exact same town. Now, they, they're just regular townspeople in the town, but they got put together, and they got given this task, and because it's their hometown, I'm hoping that they care about it, and if they don't, I'm going to be like, hey, look, guys, you all grew up here, or you all said that you had to grow up here, or have we spent a couple years here, because we have one guy who's a dwarf, and was sort of abandoned yeah. and left there by his family. Well, they're, because... they're connected to it, though. They they have some yeah. emotional attachment to it. <laughs> Positive or negative, they're attached. Yeah. Well, and, and I so... think in a lot of ways, isn't that what responsibility really boils down to, is some form of attachment? Eh, I would say stewardship over something. Uh, combination of both, I think, probably. And you get... I think I would say that 
by being given responsibility over something and working with it, you'll naturally develop that attachment. Yeah, I can see that. That's, that works. I, I get where you're coming from. I think they go hand in hand, but I think... There is definitely an order for the chicken and the egg kind of a thing there. Well, I, maybe, but you know, now that I'm thinking about it, you're attached to something maybe because you're attached to to that, you're given responsibility over it because you care for it. It, it can go both ways, but I would say most of the time it's one way or the other. They, they're not the same thing, if that makes sense. All right, so some other stuff that we came up with that's good for being diligent at the table. We spent some time pushing forward the narrative, and that's definitely one of the things that you want to do as a diligent player. Come prepared is another one. Make sure that you've got what you need, your character is made, got some ideas of what you're going to do that night, whatever other supplies your game needs, like dice and pencils and that sort of thing. Yeah, this is mental preparedness as well as... Material preparedness. Make sure you know what game you're playing. You know the rules you need to know. Make sure you kind of come ready to play as opposed to ready to sit around and talk. Yeah. That helps. Just be ready. That's the crucial part of it. I think facilitating is also another thing that you can do to exhibit diligence at the table. And by facilitating, I mean all of the things that make the game happen that aren't actually the game. So bring food. Host the game if you can. Drive people to the game. Any of those things where it's like the logistical back end of the gaming experience. Exactly. Tending to that is a good way of exhibiting diligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's what Brandon was talking about uh, towards the beginning of the podcast when we were talking about industry and making yourself and the people and things around you better. Yeah, it's a perfect example, actually. Do that. And, you know, this overlaps some with charity in, in a very good way. So, you get two for the price of one. One of you guys had another one in here that I thought was kind of uh, fascinating. Contribute out-of-game aids. I'm not sure which one of you typed that. Which one? That was me. Okay. It's, again, you're putting work into the game to make it better. But it's less about facilitating the game session, food and hosting and gas money and that sort of thing. And more about facilitating... The game, contributing a soundtrack, uh, spreadsheets, your game is really numbers heady, or a, a list of the resources you have available, or if you're an artist, contribute cool art, draw people character portraits, or that sort of thing. Just add something to the game to make there it is better. nothing so awesome as a custom-drawn character portrait from somebody who's a really good artist. Yes, and if you're blessed with that particular talent, please make the most of it, because... First of all, you'll be a favorite of everybody. Yeah, <laughs> everybody will love you. And second, it'll really help the game just really stand out, and it'll be really cool. Speaking of helping the game, too, I would say also put the effort into helping other players learn the game and how to game. Yeah, and I think this goes beyond just learning the rules and procedures of the game, but also learning some of the etiquette and culture of gaming a yeah, little bit. exactly. Likewise... You should learn the game yourself, and that kind of comes into the coming prepared. Take notes. Be diligent about keeping up with the game so that that doesn't all fall on the GM or one other person. Know what's going on. Be able to refer back to things. It'll save you a lot of work in the long run and a lot of confusion, and it's just a really good, easy way to help out. And then there's one other one that I put in here that I wanted to make sure we address. Yes, and this is good. As contradictory as this may seem, know when the rest of your life trumps your fun. 
Gaming while neglecting other critical responsibilities is a form of sloth, no matter how much you put into it. If you have something else that you need to be attending to, you know, work, your family, that sort of thing, you're not exhibiting any kind of a virtuous character. And by I mean that, I mean personal character, not, you know, player character. Yeah. By being at that game when you really should be taking care of something else. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Let the real responsibilities you have take priority. Do we have anything else that we want to hit here before we put this one in the can, or...? I don't. I can't say I have anything. Okay, good. All right, well, we've got a good, complete episode here, then. We do. Uh, As always, please feel free to add your own suggestions, listeners. We've got all our usual social media, you know, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, etc. You're also more than welcome to comment on the post on our blog, too. So, uh, that's savingthegamepodcast.org. Or even shoot us emails directly. We've all got Saving the Game email addresses. Yeah. Uh, that reminds me, I've got some emails I need to respond to. Talk about diligence and sloth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, at any rate, listeners, thanks for joining us for this. This series continues to be a lot of fun, and we're really glad that it seems to be really... What's the word I'm looking for? The here? reception has been very favorable, which has been very gratifying for us. Yeah. It's been favorable, and it seems to be doing a lot of good which is great to hear. Yeah. Tells us we should keep doing it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. All right. Well, it's getting late. Brandon, I'm sure you got to start editing. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, at least this one's shorter than the last one's going to be. But from all of us here at Saving the Game, thank you very much for listening. And have a good night. See ya. This has been a production of Saving the Game. Copyright 2013. This podcast may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial non-derivative license, provided that credit is given to savingthegamepodcast.org. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. For past episodes, podcast news from our hosts, or to connect with us, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.